So John chapter number 1, we went through the first three verses. We'll pick it up in verse number 4. The Bible says, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before the throne. So John is a, a type of the church, the apostle John. He's a type of the church. Uh, he was the beloved disciple, the one who laid his head on the breast of Jesus Christ at the Last Supper. He was the youngest of the disciples and the closest to Jesus Christ. He had three in his inner circle, and John would be the one, that, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I, I don't really feel like there's any love uh, quite like the love of Jesus Christ for the church. Uh, you gotta ima- I just can't imagine him laying down his life like he did, shedding his blood like he did for you and I. It's important for you to grab a hold of the fact that your Savior loves you. Uh, you, need to, you need to really grab a hold of that. Uh, you're important to Him. We're not a big self-help church, right? We're not into the whole psychological stuff of the modern day church and always trying to make us feel better about us because we worship us and it's all about we and us, you know? But that would be out of balance if I was always putting you down and not also showing you that Jesus Christ loves you and He cares about you. And John was a disciple whom Jesus loved. He's writing to the seven churches which are in Asia. And notice what he says, grace be unto you in peace. Now it's important to notice that because grace always comes before peace. Grace be unto you and peace. Every time you see it listed like that, grace comes first and peace comes second. And that's important to grab a hold of for a practical application to your life. Because a lot of times what God will give you is the grace to make it through your problems, the grace to make it through the storm. The peace comes after the storm. And sometimes you need grace. Uh, I've learned that in my life, that asking God to stop my problems uh, is sometimes not what I actually need. I I want my problems to stop, don't you? By the way, did you guys notice our guest in the back corner? Mrs. Ferguson's here. I meant to say something before I started, and we're so happy that she's here. She made it. We prayed that you'd make it this morning, and she made it tonight. So that was a quick answer to prayer. But we've missed you. I feel better now that you're back there. I feel like I'm ready to preach. That's okay. We don't, we don't care. We're happy you're here tonight. Yes, ma'am. Well, we'll buy heated blankets and we'll come to your house all winter and we'll wrap you in heated blankets and get you in the car and bring you to church. Because you're the church grandma. You've officially been adopted as Grandma Ferguson. That's what everybody has to refer to you as or they get kicked out. So you're the church grandma. But I'm, I'm, I meant to point that out and I'm sorry and I'm happy to see you tonight. All right, where was I at? This is important. I looked back there and saw her face and I was like, uh-oh, I really messed up. So John, grace before peace. Um, I want God to remove my problems, but I've learned that my problems actually are good sometimes. God uses them to make me better. So I've learned now when I'm in it, I ask God for the grace to get me through it. And you know what God eventually always does? He brings peace. So grace always comes before peace, and he's asking, he's, he's giving that to the church, he's praying that for the church, grace be unto you in peace from him which is. Now notice that about the Lord. You say, who is he? He is. He's the I am, and which was, in the beginning, God. <laughs> Where'd God come from? He was there. 
was talking to somebody just recently. It's like, well, I'm just not sure what I believe about any of it. I, I'm not saying there's no God. I'm not saying there is. I'm not sure what I believe. And I pointed out to him, I said, listen, no matter what you believe about things you've never seen, it's faith. Period. End of the discussion. Everybody has faith. Whether you admit you do or not, I'm not a man of faith. I'm a man of science. Hogwash, you're a man of faith. Well, I'm a man of science. Okay, so you've observed it and you've repeated it. You mean everything you believe you've observed or repeated? You do know you're here. How'd you get here? Well, I mean... I believe in the Big Bang. Faith. Never been observed and never been repeated. You understand that, right? Sure. So you say, well, you crazy Christians. That's what they'll tell you. Oh, you guys are crazy. You just blind faith and you just use it as a crutch and all that stuff. Really? I mean, like, like it's miraculous. It's miraculous that a woman is pregnant. We, we, got, we got more than one pregnant woman in the church right now. There's nothing miraculous. Nobody goes, oh, What? She has a baby in her belly? Huh? That's never, never heard of that before. There's nothing miraculous about that. I mean, it, it is kind of miraculous. But to you and I, that's not like a miracle. That's normal. What, what is kind of miraculous is that she had a baby and that baby was virgin born. That's 50% of a miracle. Do you understand the point I'm making? I believe in a Big Bang. That's a 100% miracle. So you have more faith than I have. I was making that point because everybody always wants to tell you this. They want to say, well, the Bible is written by men. Right. So that means you just discredit it and throw it all away. It was, by the way. As a Christian, you don't do yourself favors when you're so stubborn and belligerent about what you believe that anything that person that doesn't agree with you says, you're automatically going to reject what they're saying, right? Well, the Bible is written by men. You're like, I agree. You're right. It was. But the difference between what you believe and what I believe is we believe that holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. God gave those men the words to write. Okay, I believe that. Now, my faith has substance to it and evidence to it. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That's the faith God tells you to have in His Word in Hebrews chapter number 11. He says it has substance and it has evidence. The Bible's not against science. It's against science falsely so-called like a Big Bang theory. Sure. Not fact. Theory. God is not against science. God is the author of science. So when you say, okay, well, you believe a book written by men. I absolutely believe a book written by men, and I believe it's the inerrant, infallible words of God that God gave those men to write down. Now... If I'm going to believe that and not just be a knucklehead, there must be substance and evidence to what I believe. So I study to show myself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And I open up my Bible and I say, God, where in this book can you show me that you wrote it, that you gave those men these words? When I went on that journey, that I hate that word because everybody is so overused now in the modern church, but when I went on that Vendetta, because part of me wanted to prove that it wasn't true. I was in my early 20s. Part of me wanted to be able to rub it in my parents' face that they were wrong. When I went on that vendetta and began honestly looking at the Bible and studying that thing, I'm so sick of people criticizing the Bible that never studied it and then calling me a bigot. You're a bigot. I mean, I'm not, trying, I'm not being mean. I'm just saying let's really define the terms. I looked at it honestly, 
and I was willing to not believe it. Are you willing to believe it? See the issue? So I start studying the Bible and you find, you find scientific fact that's been proven nowadays to be factually sound science. After scientific fact, after scientific fact, after scientific, all the way through that Bible, from the oldest book ever written, all the way through the book of Revelation, you can find scientific facts in the Bible that are written down before science ever figured it out. Amen. And then you study history and you find out they made fun of the Bible in your lap. Because there was scientific facts in there that they didn't know were true. They were making fun of those scientific facts and then have to eat their words later, just like they're eating their words now on the Big Bang. What I'm trying to say is God. That's what I'm trying to say to you. Well, where did God come from? None of your business. That's terrible, isn't it? I know I'm not supposed to be preaching tonight, but here I am preaching. You say, why would you say that? Because he didn't explain it. Do you know there's some things God does expect us to just believe by faith in Him? Did I tell you at the beginning, everybody has faith? Everybody. God gives more answers for why we should believe the Bible and believe in His existence and believe that He was, is, and is to come. God gives more evidence and facts in that book in your lap than anybody else can give to support anything that they believe anywhere on the planet. Any religion, you cannot find more facts and evidence and proof than the book God put in your lap because He's a good God. And He lets you check it out. And He holds Himself to account. And he says, I'll give you my word, and my word shall not return void, and it's forever settled in heaven. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. I got it settled for you, and I'll give it to you. Now, believe it or don't, but study it. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. You got a reasonable God in heaven. And he's willing to reason with you and be patient with you and teach you if you really want to learn. Isn't that neat? Where'd God come from? None of your business. He told you at the beginning, in the beginning, God. In John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, capital W. That's Jesus Christ, right? God which was and is and is to come. Now, you've got to understand this in the light of His positions. There's three different positions that God holds, and we'll look at them. The was is His bodily presence. He was here. When He was here in the flesh, He was a prophet. That's what He was doing. The scribes and the Pharisees even admitted and believed, hey, we know you're a prophet. By the way, Islam believes Jesus Christ was a prophet. All these other false religions that believe in lots of different gods and religious teachers, none of them deny Jesus Christ. None of them deny the Bible. The Muslims say the Muslims do, no, not all the Bible. They believe only the words of Jesus written and read because they believe Jesus was a prophet of Muhammad. They understand that Jesus Christ was a prophet. In other words, their line has gone throughout all the earth and their words under the end of it. God's gotten a witness into every religion, everywhere on the planet, all the way around the world. They all have to attest to the fact that Jesus Christ was real and they'll all recognize that he was a prophet. You can't find me one that won't say, yeah, Jesus Christ was actually, you know, we do believe that Jesus, you know, he was love and, and he was amazing and he did exist and he did do great things. They all recognize him. They're forced to, even those that reject him are forced to recognize him. Because God so loved the world. He was. And when he was here, his position was a prophet. His current position, right now, he's a priest. And the day is coming that we'll look at here shortly in Revelation where you'll see him as a king. But right now, you don't see the Lord Jesus Christ as a king. 
He's not ruling and reigning on a throne in Jerusalem. As we have seen, and we will continue to see as we go through Revelation, that's a future thing. Right now, the Bible tells you in 1 Corinthians that Satan is the god of this world. You know who's running the show right now? Satan. Now, you, you, well, we're just trying to, you know, working for God's kingdom. That's a common phrase among religious people. But the fact of the matter is, is that the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. That's a spiritual kingdom, which is in existence right now. The kingdom of heaven is not here yet. That is when Jesus Christ will sit on a throne in Jerusalem over in the Middle East, that, that Israel. He'll sit on a throne and he will rule and reign for a thousand years, which we'll look at soon. Right now, Jesus Christ is operating as a priest. Now, I want you to see some passages to show you what I'm talking about. Go to 1 Timothy chapter number 2, please. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Look at verse 5. 1 Timothy 2, 5. It says, For there is one God, you see that? And one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. You know what a priest does? He mediates. He's the go-between. The people would have to go to the priest in the Old Testament to get forgiveness from God. Remember that? You know who the priest is right now? It's Jesus Christ. You don't go to a man as a go-between between you and God. There's one God and one mediator between God and men. You know what that's ruling out? That's ruling out the Old Testament priesthood. He says the priest right now is your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at another passage. Uh, look over with me, if you would, at Romans chapter 8. Just want you to see how the Lord Jesus Christ is operating right now. Romans chapter 8. Look at verse number 27. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints... According to the will of God. Look at verse 34. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. You know who the priest is right now? It's Jesus Christ. You know what he's doing? He's sitting at the right hand of God, and he's constantly making intercession. You know how you have your salvation and you keep it? Satan's the accuser of the brethren, isn't he? He wants to make sure God sees every mistake you make, every sin you commit, every time you do wrong. Whether in thought, word, or deed, whether in spirit or in flesh, he wants to make sure that every sin you committed is rubbed in the face of God and Jesus Christ ever liveth to make intercession for you, which was and is. Aren't you glad he is? <laughs> That's a blessing that Jesus Christ is interceding for me. I'm thankful my Savior loves me, that he loves his bride. Because without Jesus Christ, folks, I don't care how holy you try to live or how spiritual you try to be. I don't care if you're the man of God or not the man of God or whatever you are or you think you are. You wouldn't make it. I wouldn't make it through one day of my life. I wouldn't make it through one hour of my day. I found myself getting a little crankier as I get older when I wake up in the morning. I used to bounce out of bed and be ready to just greet the world. And I'm still getting out of bed. I got this problem with not being able to sleep in anymore. It's a real problem. I want you to pray for me. It's like a disease. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, I woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning. I went to bed Friday night. Saturday morning, I woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning, 3.30 in the morning. And, and my poor wife woke up too. So we're sitting downstairs on the couch, 3.30 in the morning, and 
bang, boom, smash going on in the garage. I grab the gun. I run out in the garage. I have a gun, just so you know, in case you want to break in my house. I go running out in the garage. I'm like, okay, here's my chance, right? Well, the stinking one of the bikes fell off the ceiling, hit the fridge, hit the deep freeze, and landed on the floor. But I thought somebody's breaking into my house at 3.30 in the morning. You know what I was thinking? This is great. No problem. Up early. I'll be good. I'll sleep real good tonight. Well, I mean, I went to bed. I slept decent last night, thank the Lord. But I didn't do no sleeping in. My body says, it's 4 o'clock in the morning. It's time to get out of bed. I thought, you know, when I was younger, it used to be like, yes, it's a new day. I just woke up. Where's the coffee? Come on. Hey, honey, how you doing? How'd you sleep? You feeling good? Like, now I'm like, yeah. One or two of my daughters have my personality. One or two of them have my wife's. And I get up and I'm like, oh, she's up already. Don't talk to me. <laughs> it's not really that bad. I'm playing, I promise. <laughs> But the point I'm driving at is sometimes I can't make it an hour into my day without going, Lord, you know what? I need to ask you to forgive me because I see what a sinner I am. I'm just thankful that I have an intercessor. I'm thankful that I have a priest who sits at the right hand of the throne of God and ever liveth to make intercession for me. I don't think I can make it. I know I couldn't make it without him. Look at another passage about this priest thing. Go to Hebrews chapter 7, just showing you who the Lord is right now, which was and which is. Hebrews chapter 7. Look at verse 25. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost. I like that verse. The worst, the uttermost, no matter how bad they are, no matter how much you might hate them, how much their lifestyle or anything else runs against your political agenda, no matter how abominable their sin is in the eyes of God and according to the Bible, fact, God can save them to the uttermost. You and I need to remember that lest we get too caught up in Fox News and the rest of the agenda and too angry with the world for being the world and too anti the world. You understand what I'm trying to say? God, Jesus Christ died to forgive everybody their sin. And you're glad he forgave you, aren't you? Yeah, but I don't want him to forget them because their sin is much more despicable than my sin. Really, who said? Who said? I know that offends some of you because you're good people. And good people get real offended by straight preaching. I'm not saying their sin's okay. I said I believe according to the Bible it's an abomination to God. And Jesus Christ died to forgive them from sin, period, the end of the discussion. So the uttermost, I mean the worst of what you can think of, if they'll come to Jesus Christ, they'll get forgiven for their sin. You know there's men on death row right now, and here's my position. You don't have to like it or agree with me. I, I don't care. There's men on death row that'll stay on death row and should stay on death row until death meets them. You understand that? That's the just penalty for what they've done to other people and other people's lives. Now, you can get all self-righteous about the death penalty all you want, but number one, it's biblical. And number two, you won't be that self-righteous when some creep gets a hold of one of your little girls and does something heinous. Then talk to me. Until then, let's not get all self-righteous about it. Men on death row for the wickedest of crimes can find forgiveness for their sin in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ if they'll ask Him to forgive them. And He'll forgive them. Ain't that something else? I mean, I, that to me is no compromise at all. I mean, if I got the call, preacher, this guy wants to meet with you. He wants to talk about salvation. I go down and talk to him about salvation. Say, glad you're saved, man. Now you got to go take your appointment. 
You know, when men get saved, and there's, there's been stories of them truly getting saved on death row and saying, no, I need to stay here because I'm forgiven for it, but I still need, I still owe that to the family that I hurt. I've heard of those testimonies. Pretty wild. You know, Jesus Christ can save them to the uttermost. Now, that encourages me because sometimes I get a little discouraged when I'm going back again and asking forgiveness again for something I've already asked forgiveness for. And the devil creeps up in my mind and heart and says, hey, you've asked so many times now. And you're just playing games with God. God ain't going to forgive you. You've asked him so many times. You think God's going to forgive you again? The devil does that in my head. I don't know about you, but I, I've, I've been through those thoughts. He's able to save them to the uttermost. You've got a great Savior. That come unto God by him, he's the priest, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. That's what Jesus Christ is doing now. You know what he's fixing to come do soon? And I believe it'll be soon. He's fixing to come be your king, which was and is and is to come. Now look at a couple of passages on that. Look at, uh, let's just go to Romans chapter 14. Romans 14, 11. Let me look at this other one. I, we may go there, we may not, but i got to cut some of these out. So, uh, Look at this one while you're going there. Go into Romans 14, if you would. Okay. Romans 14, 11. There's lots of it on there, and you see it, obviously, in the book of Revelation. It says in Romans 14, 11, For as it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. You know what they're going to do eventually? Everybody, everywhere, will bow to Jesus Christ and confess that He is God. He's going to be the King. He's coming back to reign and to rule. Go back with me, if you would, please, to the book of Revelation chapter 1. Notice the second part of that, verse number 4, and from the seven spirits which are before His throne. Alright, so He's coming to be a King, but... Very interesting, from the seven, see the number, number of perfection? Look at the spirits. Do you see the, do you see the, the word? Yeah. Now, in your Bible, there should be a capital S there. Is there a capital S there? Yeah. All right. Now, that's the, if, you, if you don't have a capital S there, you've got a problem. Those are the seven spirits of God. And they're standing before the throne. Ain't that, ain't that quite a mind-boggling concept? pretty cool. You say, what in the world is that? All right? Let the Bible explain the Bible, right? Because if you, if you study your Bible and you just try to like say it means this and it means this and it means this and it means this, who said? The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. So we use our Bible to learn our Bible, right? Go to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. I told you already, the book of Revelation is not hard to understand. Can everybody understand the fact that there's seven spirits standing before the throne? Yes, sir. Pretty simple, right? Kind of tough to believe, though, right? There's stuff you're going to come to as we go through Revelation. You're like, huh? Not hard at all to understand. But, man, for people, they have a hard time believing it. And I told you before, one of the reasons they don't want to believe the book of Revelation is because if you believe the book of Revelation the way it's written... Rightly divided, as you compare Scripture to Scripture, what happens is it puts you and I in a position of subjection to Jesus Christ. If I can go ahead and say the kingdom's already here, I can get more authority on myself than what I actually am biblically given. 
So that's what a lot of churches will teach. A lot of denominations teach that. Jesus Christ is the king. He's seated in heaven and his kingdom's already going on earth. <clears throat> but since he's not here to run it, he's running it through us. You see that? That's a dangerous sleight of hand. That just gives a man the power of Almighty God given to a man to make decisions and to sit and speak as though he's God. Jesus Christ himself will reign on that throne and until he's here reigning on that throne, he ain't given that kind of power to a man. So we believe that time is coming, but right now is a time where Satan is the God of this world and he's running the show and we're occupying till he comes. We're looking for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter number 11, look at verse number 1. And there came forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Now watch these spirits. The Spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, and might. The Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And the first one of the seven was the Spirit of the Lord. So, you and I come up there and we stand before the throne. I remember Brother Lentz explained it this way and it's pretty terror striking. He said, you're standing there and there's the spirit of the Lord. There's the spirit of wisdom. There's the spirit of understanding. There's the spirit of counsel. There's the spirit of might. There's the spirit of knowledge. And there's the spirit of the fear of the Lord. And you're standing there at the judgment seat of Christ. And you're like, uh-oh. You're giving account for the things you did. And he tells you he put his spirit in you. And you're supposed to subject yourself to his spirit and be filled with his spirit and follow his spirit. Don't grieve him and don't quench him and let him run the show. And you're standing there looking and like, oh, and God begins judging. Where was the wisdom in that? Where was the knowledge in that? Where was the fear of the Lord in that? Where was the might in that? Where was the counsel in that? Not a weird thought. Just a weird thought. I'm, I'm not I'm just saying it's a weird thought. But he said there's seven spirits before the throne, and Isaiah 11 tells you what those spirits are. And it's the Spirit of the Lord. Really interesting, huh? I don't know about that. Well, God said it, not me. Back to Revelation chapter 1. They're standing there for judgment. And that's a pretty frightening thought to me. All right? He's got all, every base covered in those seven spirits when God comes to judge you. And by the way, the judgment seat of Christ is a judgment. Paul said, No one therefore the terror of the Lord. He did say, Yet he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. So you're not going to lose your soul, but you're losing something pretty important when you get there. And that's going to be a pretty impressive situation, to say it mildly. Verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead. Here's another one. They'll say, you know, he wasn't born again. Some will teach that Jesus wasn't born again until he came up from the dead, that he was, he was born again at that time. There's all kinds of cults and twisted perversions when they come to this book, the book of Revelation especially. They mess it up so bad it ain't even funny. The first begotten of the dead, the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. 
Now, understand what that first begotten of the dead is. It's the same thing as we talked about with the revelation of St. John the Divine, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Remember how I said the problem is a basic understanding of English and how prepositions work? The same thing is true in verse number 5. What that thing is saying is he's the first one to come up out of the grave. You say, wait a minute, Lazarus did. No, wait, now stop for a second. Everybody else who came up died again. Well, what about Moses? What about Elijah? They're coming back in the tribulation. They're going to get killed in the tribulation. Everybody else died again. Jesus Christ was the first one to come up from the dead and never die again. He's the first begotten of the dead. That's all things teaching. It's that simple. And you've got to just not overthink it and not start reading into it. You've got to understand simple English and compare Scripture to Scripture, and it gets pretty clear. He's the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us. See that? I told you that already. God loves you. Ain't that a blessing? And what did he do when he loved you? He washed us from our sins in his own blood. Thank God for that. Now, I want to run a couple of references on the blood and then get back over here. Notice, first of all, go to Acts chapter 20. And this is important to understand. What he shed was the blood of God. And for whatever reason, that's a real sticking point for some people. It was the blood of God that was shed for you. God Almighty shed His own, His own Son's blood. It was the blood of Holy God that was shed. Acts twenty twenty eight. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God. This is, for whatever reason, this is a hard thing for people to understand. And what I'm driving at is the purpose and the point of church. I don't understand why it's so difficult for people. I mean, I kind of understand, but I kind of don't. What's the point of church? What are we, what are we doing here? Like, why, why do we go to church? You go to church to get fed the Word of God. You, you judge a church based on whether or not you're getting fed. If you're not getting fed, then you need to go where you can get fed. The preacher's job, his instructions, are to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. That's the point of church. Man, you live in this generation where it's win them, wet them, and work them. That means win them to Christ, get them saved, get them in the baptismal pool, dunk them, wet them, and then put them to work. Everybody needs a position and a title, and we need to work them, we need to involve We need help around here, we need help around here, we need help around here. And it was like almost programmed into people that, boy, I need to be doing something, and I need to be helping, and I need to be in a position. And, and like people that aren't even ready spiritually are immediately put into positions running stuff around the church. You know what that does? That creates a bunch of egomaniacs that develop envy and everything else and strife and division. It turns church into being all about you. Listen, I'm not trying to hold anybody back. I like the fact that our church is growing, and I believe there's more and more opportunities coming for you to serve, to get you involved and plug you in and just be patient, and trust me, I'm working on it. I want to see you working for the Lord. I like it. But that ain't the number one thing about church. The number one thing is feed them. Get something from God that will help you. And help your family so you can go out there and do what you need to do and make it through this week and come limping back in next week and get fed again. That's the instructions. Now, that's a pretty important instruction because look at the last phrase in that verse, which he hath purchased with his own blood. God tells the overseers, 
which is another name for pastor and for, you know, shepherd, the under shepherd and all the rest of that stuff, the bishop. He said, what I want you to do is feed them. I purchased them with my blood. What blood was that? Look at the verses, Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. If you can't turn there, that's fine. I can read it to you. But if you can, you need to look at it. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7. In whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Who's it talking about? In the context, it's talking about Jesus Christ. You see that back up in verse number 5. But Acts 20, 28 tells you that's the blood of God. You know the point I'm making? Guess who Jesus Christ is? He's God. I and my Father are one. Well, how could that be? You're here and He's up there. How could, how could, I and my Father are one. Yeah, but how could that be? Like, I mean, I, it's a trinity. Well, how can that be? You're a trinity. You're made in His image. You know you're a trinity. You ain't like a dog. You can reason. You got a personality. Dogs have a spirit. Well, different dogs are different. There's a different energy level sometimes in different dogs, but they're pretty instinctive. All of them are pretty instinctive. You can't reason with a dog. Some of you Americans, you talk to your dog like they're human and like they understand everything. You're, oh, look, he understands English. They don't understand English, okay? Just tell me. Just trust me. They don't understand English. They understand specific words they're programmed to. But they don't communicate like you and I communicate in full sentences. And we talk to our dog in full sentences too, and it's okay. <laughs> She's little, man, so I mean, what are you going to do? I'm getting old and weak, so I'm like all... She jumped up on my lap this today, and this is the first time I've ever let my dog give me kisses. And she was kissing me all over. I'm like, oh my goodness, what in the world is happening to me? I threw her on the floor like, I don't like this. <laughs> but you're different from a dog. Because cause you got, you're, you're, you're made in His image. You've got a body, a soul, and a spirit. They're, they're a dichotomy. They've got a body and a spirit. They don't have a soul. You do. He purchased you with His own blood. All right? That's the blood of Jesus Christ. Look at Colossians. And this is, believe it or not, this has become unpopular. Mind-blowing to me. I mean, literally mind-blowing to me that the blood of Jesus Christ has become unpopular in churches today. I, I, are you like kidding me right now? Like people that claim to be saved, like uh, this, you know, you don't have to be so graphic about the crucifixion and take, they, they're taking the blood out of songs. We're not, we're not getting rid of, we're, we're saved by the blood of the crucified one. If that offends you, you got the wrong church. But God help me, I ain't never compromising something like that. He shed his blood for me. You think I'm that disloyal and cowardly? A little stinking snake that I sell Jesus Christ's blood out to get hind ends and pews and money in a box? You think I care about the stinking money? No way, man. That was priceless. That was the blood of God that was shed for my soul and for your soul. And by the grace of God, we ain't selling that thing out. Thank you, because I sound like I'm chewing you out for wanting me to sell it out, and I know you don't. So Colossians chapter 1, verse 14, In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. That's the blood of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 15, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. You know, he, was, he was the image of the invisible God. That was God made flesh. Emmanuel, Christmas time, right? God made flesh. All right, uh, that's enough. I got more, but let's go back to Revelation chapter 1. Point made, there's a bunch more. So that was the blood of God that was shed for you. And that's Jesus Christ. 
He washed us from our sins in His own blood. Look at verse 6. And hath made us kings and priests unto God and His Father. Now notice that. He hath made us kings and priests. So in other words, you don't have to go to a priest anymore to get forgiveness for your sin. See, that's a messed up setup. That setup is an Old Testament setup. You, don't be, you have no business climbing into a confessional booth. Show me one, show me one passage. You show me one verse where you're supposed to be going to a man to confess your sin. To get forgiveness from God. One. You can't show me a verse, then you're out of line. And the Spirit of God is going to judge that thing. The Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of counsel, the Spirit of might, the Spirit of understanding. He's going to say, where'd you get that from? And you're going to say, well, my priest told me. Well, my, my preacher told me. Well, my religion believed. Well, I was raised, the, well, the catechism classes. Well, but, but, where, but where did I ever say that? Right. That ain't in the Bible. You know what you are? You're a priest. You know what you're going to be? If we suffer, we shall also what? Oh. So at that judgment, he's going to be determining where you're going in the millennial kingdom. So right now, you're a priest. You go straight to God yourself. You get in there and you say, God, I need your help. I need some forgiveness. I got the spirit of God in me that takes my prayers up with groanings which cannot be uttered. You got Jesus Christ working for you in heaven. And you can go boldly into the throne of grace yourself that you might find mercy and grace to help in a time of need. He's made us kings and priests unto God. That's now. That's you and I. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now look at the... You know what? I'm going to get that one next week. I got a couple things I can show you on this priest thing. And let me do that because I don't want to rush through this next verse. And if I start now, I'm going to feel like I'm rushing through because it's already almost six. So just give me just a couple more minutes. And let me show you something I think is kind of interesting about that priesthood. Go over to 1 Samuel chapter 2. Right now you're priests, right? Let me show you something a priest does. I think this will be a better place to stop tonight. 1 Samuel, uh, what did I say? Chapter 2, right? First Samuel 2, look at verse 28. It says, And did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest? Now watch what a priest does, because you're, you're kings and priests right now, right? You're going to be a king coming soon, and you're a priest right now. Yes. To offer upon mine altar. You know what God wants his priests to do? Offer on the altar. Now, now hold on a quick second. Guys that are called to preach, this is a good textual message. It's not an expository message, but if you had like 15, 20 minutes maybe to preach in a jail or a nursing home or something like that, or popcorn preaching, you could build a message right off of this one verse, which is a textual message, and you pull all your points out of that, and you can hit them real fast to preach a 20-minute message just like that on what it means to be a priest right now. Priests offer. Can anybody think of a thing God asked you to offer in the New Testament? Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your a living sacrifice. You know what you and I should offer if we're truly priests of God? Here am I, Lord. Send me. 
My life is yours to control. Not my will, but thine be done. Lord, I'm yours. You know what that is? That's what Paul talked about. He said, I die daily. You know what he was doing? He was daily sacrificing himself on God's altar. He was saying, not my will, but thine. Not my will, but thine. Not my will, but thine. God, I'm sorry. God, I keep acting like Mike. And Mike's a jerk. And Mike's wrong. And Mike's arrogant. Mike thinks he knows it all. Mike thinks he knows better for his life than God does. Mike's got his own will all the time about everything. And God, I keep acting like Mike. Not my will, but thine be done. God, I'm yours. I'm offering you a sacrifice. And it's me. He purchased me with his blood, right? We beat that to death. Do you understand that? He purchased you with his blood. There ain't a more precious price he could have paid for you than that. So it's the least you can do to say, God, I'm yours. In everything from start to finish, top to bottom, I mean, whether it be spiritual, practical, physical, whatever it is, God, I'm yours. I'm going to give you a sacrifice. He said, when I made you a priest, did I not uh, offer upon mine altar to burn incense? Well, you've been in your Bible at all, you know what that is. That's a type of prayer. You guys, we really need to be praying people. I sure hope you have a prayer life. There ain't nothing like it when you're in the hospital to say, Hey, preacher, would you have the church pray? To send out that flock note, have everybody start praying for Mrs. Mrs. Uh, uh, Drozdowski. Everybody start praying for Grandma Ferguson. Everybody start praying for Sophia. There ain't nothing like it, man. I am telling you right now, there, there is nothing like it. That's part of your priesthood. You don't need to go to a priest and ask him what to pray. You need to go to your knees and start talking to your Savior, the one that loves you and purchased you. You don't have to be fancy about your prayers. I would pray, but I don't know how to pray. Listen, that's a great argument when it comes to witnessing, okay? I understand that some people get tongue-tied and locked up and aren't sure what to say. And if you're recently saved, then I give you that one. Been saved for a while, you've got to start figuring out what to say and stop using that as an excuse. Just start doing your best. And by the way, some of the greatest soul winners are people that don't know all the verses but just got saved and all they know is what Jesus did for them and they're excited about it. And that guy's like, man, what happened to you? And the Holy Spirit of God starts burning in his heart because he's like, I need whatever they got. I need to find out about that at least. But, I, but, I, but I'll give you that one. I get it that it's hard to talk to people. But you guys, it shouldn't be hard to talk to God. And why is that the most difficult spiritual discipline there is? For me, for me, this is, this is bizarre, I know, but for me, it's easier to fast than it is to pray. They're supposed to go together, fasting and prayer. <laughs> but for me, it's easier to just go, you know what, I'm not going to eat. Man, I've been trying to gain weight lately, and I get to where I don't even want to look at food, because I'm just, <sighs> feel so full. For me, I'd rather just, I could just stay busy all through dinner and all through breakfast. As long as I stay busy, I'm fine. But prayer, it's got to be super, there's got to be something about it that's supernatural that the devil resists or the flesh resists. And, and if, it's, if there's that much resistance to your prayer life, it must be so powerful. And it's just, it's what a priest is supposed to do. They're supposed to offer, they're supposed to pray, and then notice this, to wear an ephod before me. Now that to me would typify the new man. You're supposed to put on the new man, aren't you? He's made us kings and priests. He bought you with his own blood. So you're told by Paul...
to put off the old man and to put on the new man. Now, the Bible tells you in 1 Corinthians 5.17, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Or 2 Corinthians 5, it's 5.17 in one of the Corinthians. He said, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Isn't that a blessing? That's what God did for you spiritually the moment you got saved. Ain't it weird how you can get saved and then turn around and you find out two weeks later, two months later, two years later, 20 years later, you're still struggling with the same sins you committed before you were a new creature? Because your soul got saved, but your flesh ain't. That's why it's dying. And I'll show you next week when we get into verse number seven. I'll show you next week God's going to fix that problem. And we're looking forward to that day. But between now and then, you got that problem. You still got that old man. You're told to put him off. That takes you back to the altar. And it's not enough to just quit. You better replace quitting with something. You see what I'm saying? You can't just quit the bar on Friday night. You better replace it with church on Wednesday night or church on Sunday night. You get what I'm saying? When you put off something, you got to put something on. Because that void, the devil will go get seven spirits more wicked than himself and come back and repossess you. And you got to understand a saved person can get just as messed up by the devil as a lost person can get. That's a subject for another day, but another hotly contested one. Can a saved person be possessed? You don't want to know the answer, doctrinally. You can get just as messed up, if not more. You'd be shocked at some of the most demonic influences that have ever existed were born again. That's scary, ain't it? Put off that stuff, but don't leave a vacancy. Put on the ephod. You know what a priest does? He says, you know what, I'm the Lord, so guess what? It's time for me to start putting on some things God wants me to put on. So I'm going to start loving folks. I'm putting off the envy, but I'm going to put on some charity. I'm putting off the envy, but I'm going to put on some forgiveness. A priest puts on the ephod God wants him to put on. And that's you and I. All right, that'll stop uh, at verse number 6. We'll pick it up in verse number 7 next week because I want to dig down here and show you some stuff that I think, uh, Lord willing, will be pretty interesting to you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the answer. I come up with a couple options, and 